welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Our guests today are Dr. Jay Siegel, who is Chief Biotechnology Officer and Head of Scientific Strategy and Policy at Johnson & Johnson, and Dr. Robert Willenbucker, who is Head of Janssen Cell Therapy and also Head of Janssen Incubator, which is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. Welcome, both of you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Pleased to be here. So we thought we would start off with introductions. We're hoping that you could provide us with a brief overview of what you do in your respective careers. Well, thanks. Most, all of my career has been in the area of biologic product development and assessment. For 20 years at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and for the last 12 years or so at Johnson & Johnson. My role has been within Johnson & Johnson, almost entirely in the R&D space, although most recently I'm also more actively engaged in the uh, public policy space. So I work with our R&D teams across the entire company, which has its consumer device and pharmaceutical sectors, and I also do more of my work with specific groups in pharmaceuticals where I have the most expertise. And then I represent our company in various public fora on the, on the board of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, a biotechnology industry organization, and also in various venues before Congress, World Health Organization, various other industry organizations, the National Academies of Science, the NIH, and other areas in developing or helping develop and influence scientific and regulatory policy and legislation. And with you? Sure. Thanks, Josh. So I have a background in academics. I'm trained as an internist and a gastroenterologist, and I spent 10 years on the faculty at both UCLA and UCSF. But I joined J&J about 15 years ago. I've initially worked in clinical development and then worked in business development. Got a business degree um, in there <laughs> along the way. And, but for the last 10 years, I've been working in the regenerative medicine space. We started one of our initial programs in regenerative medicine as an internal startup, what we call internal venture. And as you had mentioned, I'm, I'm now the head of Janssen Cell Therapy. Based on my corporate entrepreneur experience, Jay and some other senior leaders in the company had come to me a couple of years ago and we conceived of and then executed the Janssen Incubator, which is an entrepreneurial approach to internal innovation. Great. Dr. Siegel, you mentioned that you're actively engaged in R&D leadership and in policy development at the national and international levels. Could you provide some recent examples of policy issues that you have worked on? Yeah, sure. This is actually a very active time period in the space of policy globally and in the U.S., particularly with regard to regenerative medicine and biological therapies. A lot of recent activity has come from an initiative spearheaded by Representative Upton in the House Energy and Commerce Committee called 21st Century Cures, which has been an extensive look at how products are developed and the environment for the development of products that translate scientific advances into medical advances and how to improve that environment and accelerate and incentivize within that environment. So uh, they've held a number of hearings for the last several months. I testified on modernization of clinical trials. 
Um, for example, how could the clinical trial process, which is lengthy and costly, uh, be, made, uh, be made more efficient or better utilized? But there's a, any of a number of areas that they're now and will over the next year be considering legislation. How an important area from a regenerative medicine perspective is how combination products are, are regulated. You know, both hmm. industry and regulatory bodies have grown up with kind of pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical regulatory groups and then device companies and device regulatory groups. And even within J&J &J that spans, uh, J&J is a leading device, medical device and consumer products and pharmaceutical companies, the way we operate our business is there is, is by sector with relatively limited crosstalk, how to bring different technologies together and how to create an environment both at the industry end and importantly at the regulatory end. What's the right regulatory process that draws on those that are used for devices and those that are used for drugs that, and biologics that might, what's the best one that might be used, for example, for a regenerative medicine product that has live cells or proteins on a, on a sca biomaterial scaffolding or that has perhaps an immunoprotective encasement around cells or organelles or that has a catheter or other device for delivering a uh, cellular or tissue therapy to the right to the right area. These are complex areas, and the new technologies need fresh thinking about the best way to, to deal with them. That's an area I've been actively engaged in, working through the biotech industry organization, working through the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, working directly yeah. with Jay. I'll stop you there, and one quick aside, and then a little bit more on the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. The quick aside, modernizing clinical trials and allowing them to progress more rapidly. Could you give us some thoughts as to what are the ideas and technologies that might allow that to happen? Uh, my testimony focused on four areas. One is the impact of electronic health records okay. and how, for example, through standardization and interoperability of electronic health records, they could be used both to establish patient registries to learn rapidly about product safety, mm -hmm. and also they could be modified to form the bases for both recruiting and conducting clinical trials that are more in the clinical practice setting, potentially mm -hmm. in doctor's offices, generating rapid information, faster enrollment, lower cost trials. Another is the development of uh, consortia and public-private partnerships for clinical trials. Oh. There's been a great new experiment called LungMap, a very flexible clinical trial created by a partnership, a number of government institutions and academic institutions and industry in which the same clinical trial will measure a lot of uh, biomarkers, personalize therapies, and move various therapies in and out of the trial, developing proof of concept for them. And that's an entire consortium, so multiple. And many academic centers that are treating the patients. Yeah. And then several companies that are feeding drugs in. And how can we exploit that sort of mile, a model? We know that federally funded research consortia and clinical trial consortia were critically important in cancer and HIV, AIDS. Yeah. And there are newer models, I think, that can address some newer issues very well. So that, okay. that was an area. Um, another area is more patient engagement in clinical trials. How can we move with while retaining all the, the validity and operational aspects of a trial from 
those things that are easy to measure in the lab to those things that really matter to patients. How can we validate patient reported outcomes better? How can we engage patients more in the design of clinical research so that we can develop clinical trials that they're more likely to stay in, to participate to the end, get rid of dropout? Hmm. So I think there's just a lot of different areas. As you say, new technologies in some cases, uh, new ideas, new possibilities, and new business models can be applied. And And the fourth area I spoke about was how best to utilize uh, biomarkers in clinical development. With the advances both in imaging and in the various omics, genomics and proteomics and whatever, there's many, many more things we can measure about people that can help us understand who's responding to therapy. But how to incorporate those technologies into clinical research in a way that facilitates product development. Also a very interesting question. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in all those spaces we've been working on and thinking proposals. So in regards to policy and and continuing with this theme, we noticed that, that you're on the board of directors for the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, or commonly known as ARM. Um, we know that ARM is focused on representing, supporting, and engaging all stakeholders in the field of regenerative medicine, that it's based in uh, Washington, D.C., and that ARM is a global advocacy organization that promotes legislative, regulatory reimbursement, investment, technical, and other initiatives to accelerate the development of safe and effective regenerative medicine technologies. We also know that ARM engages with the public which you mentioned as another important area, to inform them of the potential healthcare benefits of regenerative medicine-based therapies. I was wondering if you could speak specifically to us on how ARM has influenced R&D funding and also policy for regenerative medicine. I'm a great supporter of ARM. I'm on the board. I'm also on the executive committee that helps lead the organization. I think it, it's a very important organization. It's, I think it's hard to be quantitative about what extent ARM has influenced funding. ARM performs a very important role in keeping the investment community, venture capital, large pharmaceutical companies like J&J, informed about what's happening in the industry. They hold state of the industry briefings, investor meetings, have been able to demonstrate over recent years more than any one company could that there's major advances in the field. There's more and more growing products on the marketplace, more moving through clinical trials, more probabilities of success, demonstrating that there's an atmosphere that's ripe for investment and funding. It's very difficult to quantitate that effect. I think on the policy side, uh, ARM brings together a lot of uh, experts from uh, different companies that can think through the scientific issues and the regulatory issues and work globally to influence regulatory approaches. I toss that one over to you if, if you'd like, because I know you have in your, in your team some experts that work on some of ARM's uh, standards committees and policies committees. One of the things it does is brings together scientific experts from different companies to identify what the issues are and what good regulatory like, standards are. Are and regulatory there policies are. that ARM's working on right now to really promote regenerative medicine? ARM does, but you know one of the important functions that ARM does and and and, and also we do in collaboration with ARM as well as in collaboration with other trade groups is that frequently regulatory authorities are issuing guidances that seek industry comment. And so we're very active in providing industry comments to potential policies that impact the field. And could one of those be on standards? For, yes, for the it field? could be on, on standards, approaches to preclinical development, manufacturing requirements, nomenclature around cell banking, hmm. 
and we're very active in that space, but as not only in the U.S. but in Europe and more recently in Japan as well, because of all the uh, new legislation and regulation that's happening in Japan right now. Another important policy endeavor in, in ARM is to try to uh, galvanize government support for this space. What we're seeing in many areas like Japan, United Kingdom, is recognition that regenerative medicine is an area that could lead not only to important medical advances, but to job growth and economic growth and with good, you know, high-trained workforce. And so they're coordinating government efforts to help the industry develop. And the U.S. government has many efforts that assist and are relevant to regenerative medicine at the NIH, FDA, and many other agencies. But ARM has been trying to bring those groups together to have a more concerted, coordinated approach that would get more bang for the investment buck in terms of uh, building a regenerative medicine presence in the U.S. Hmm. Dr. Siegel, you spent 20 years at the FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. Could you describe some of the lessons learned during that time and how the regulatory climate has changed over the past five years in biologics? I learned a lot of lessons <laughs> in that experience. Uh, perhaps most relevant to this audience was when we really started thinking through the regulatory framework for regenerative medicine products. It's uh, it's very complicated to try to fit new classes of products into legislation about drugs, devices, and tissues, much of which was written many decades ago without envisioning yeah. the types of products that we now see. And, you know, so one can try to seek new legislation, but not always an efficient way to make progress. That, that takes time. And at the FDA, you're faced with these issues and how you look at everything from simple tissue banking through the cloning of human beings, where they fit into the, the range of various authorities, if they fit at all, and, uh, and how to regulate those in ways that are not burdensome, that do not suppress innovation, but at the same time protect the public and ensure safety and efficacy was a great challenge, and I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about the general area of cell therapy and about and tissue therapy and regenerative medicine and thinking through and thinking through those paradigms. And I'd say that that landscape has continued to evolve because it's had to evolve in response to the evol evolution of uh, of science and technology. Although in the last five year time frame, I'm not sure I could put my finger on on. Uh, specific areas. What I would say in this space is that the US FDA has been very active in, in working to understand the science and the product development here, in working with companies, working with academicians, and, and um, trying to develop um, appropriate approaches to uh, deal with the types of products and technologies that we're bringing along. Dr. Willenbucker, you mentioned that you're head of Janssen Cell Therapy. And we know that one of your leading projects is on macular degeneration. I was wondering if you could please tell us a little bit about what progress you've made on this project, and are there other diseases that your uh, team is focusing on beyond macular de degeneration that you'd be willing to discuss with us? Sure, Josh. Uh, as you point out, the lead program is in macular degeneration, and it's a cell-based product that's derived from umbilical cord tissue. Um, we recently conducted a small phase two trial in the advanced dry form of AMD, which is also known as geographic atrophy. And I'll just say a word about AMD. 
So age-related macular degeneration is the leading cause of blindness uh, for people over the age of 50 in the, in the developed world. And of all those cases of, of blindness, about a third of them are caused by this advanced dry form geographic atrophy. So in that study, although it was a small study, we saw some promising results where we believe we've seen some improvements in vision. And based on those results, we are planning a larger dose-ranging trial to begin next year. Beyond this program in AMD, we also have a collaboration with a California-based company called Capricore. And this is a collaboration of involving their technology of, it's a cardiac-derived cell that is currently in phase two testing for in heart failure, and we're also collaborating with them in um, process development, manufacturing process development. And finally, within the broader Johnson & Johnson, we also have a, uh, a preclinical program in, in diabetes. So you're also head of Janssen's incubator program. This program nurtures highly innovative ideas through venture teams in areas of potentially disruptive cutting-edge research. Can you tell us more about how the program funds projects and what technologies are being developed? Sure. Let, let me just give you a little bit of background about the Janssen Incubator. You know, at its simplest level, it's a way for us to invest in exciting projects and, as importantly, a way for us to invest in our people, the passionate scientists that mm -hmm. pursue these projects. It's a way for us to explore new areas that may be of higher risk but are important to our future mission of being a transformational medical innovator. And the program itself started about two years ago as a way to invest in these high-value projects that could either be products or technologies but fall outside of the focus areas of our larger organization. So it's really being able to explore white space. We have a fund, internal fund, that's managed by a board composed of senior leaders from the um, R&D and business organization. And we solicit proposals from the internal scientific community and, and through a competitive process select those for, for funding. And then funded projects we form dedicated teams, name a venture leader, and those projects get milestone-based funding over a defined period of time, usually a, a two- to four-year time frame. So we operate them like mm. internally funded venture-backed startups. Over the past two years, we've started six of them. At a high level, okay. I can give you an idea of the kind of the areas we're investing in. One is in, in lupus. One is in enabling technology that would allow us to do clinical testing in autism spectrum disease. One is a um, small molecule discovery platform that is using natural product starting points. We've got a program in pain that's really focused on uh, drugging a highly novel target. There is a multi-specific biologic that's being developed for the treatment of multi-resistant infections. And finally, there's a tool that we're developing that would enhance our ability to discover and further develop G-protein-coupled receptor ligands. So that gives you a little bit of a flavor mm -hmm. of the portfolio. Great, thank you. We like to end with key take-home message, and we were hoping that you guys could sort of synthesize everything that we talked about and 
uh, give our listeners a key take-home message that, that you'd like to give them in the spirit of regenerative medicine. This is a very exciting time in the field of regenerative medicine and in the, in the field of development of medical products in general. We have experienced extraordinary scientific and technical advances over the last couple of decades. And those advances have the potential to transform human lives and to transform the practice of medicine in many different areas. And among those areas, I would say that uh, regenerative medicine stands with a a leading group of areas that are holding out uh, great potential for human benefit. The translation of scientific and technological advances to medical advances and to, to, to transforming patients' lives is an extraordinarily complex project, and that might be perhaps the, also one of the most important take-home messages. That to, to go from science to, to small companies exploring how to apply that science, to develop and apply technologies, to test them out in animals, to perfect, test, pass through regulatory processes, policy piece to set up the regulatory framework so that you know when you make an investment what you have to show to access the markets to set up the payer framework and so forth. All of those are complex pieces, but the end of the story is truly a, a magnificent result or a potential result out there before us that keeps many tens of thousands of people uh, motivated to, to turn this into a reality. I think that innovation you know, in biomedical science is moving at a great pace now, and particularly as it relates to the regenerative medicine field in in stem cell biology, pluripotency, genome editing, tissue engineering, nanotechnology, and cellular scale imaging. They're all tremendous, exciting opportunities and advances. I think that there's a tremendous opportunity to aggregate these technologies into really meaningful products for patients. And I think the future of regenerative medicine is bright. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.